Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast. We're your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week, we explore a different perspective on or experience of depression because it varies in form and severity, affecting us differently. Our guests share intimate details of their struggles, coping strategies, and recovery. We keep it real because the struggle is real. We keep it hopeful because there is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We're not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and know that talking about the illness reduces stigma and humanizes the experience, making it safer and easier to ask for needed support. You are far from alone. Today's podcast is sponsored with a Garrett Kelly Memorial Grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation. In loving memory of Garrett and others who've struggled with depression, we are solely responsible for podcast content. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Terry. It's hard to avoid the headlines about the rising number of suicides in the United States. Today's guest, Dr. Stacy Friedenthal, author of Helping the Suicidal Person Tips and Techniques for Professionals, says that since 1999, the suicide rate in the U.S. has gone up almost 40%. Mm. For adolescents ages 15 to 19, it's risen 47%. And for children ages 10 to 14, the suicide rate, Terry, has more than doubled. That's more than a 100% increase. It is tragic. The statistics are overwhelming. And since... Every day we talk to people and are reminded that those huge numbers represent individual human beings. Children, as you said, siblings, parents, friends, co-workers. And that's why we generally leave the big picture or the 30,000-foot view to the experts while we zero in on the personal stories that people like us can actually relate to, understand, and remember. Yeah. In our next several episodes, we'll look at suicide prevention on a more intimate level. Today, we begin with Dr. Friedenthal, a psychotherapist, consultant, author, and associate professor. We attended a one-day training session with Stacy, and then asked her to share her experience and understandings of why so many young people resist or flat-out refuse to talk to their parents about their suicidal thoughts. A quick note here, the list that we're about to explore applies to parents of teens who may be thinking of suicide but not in immediate danger of acting on those thoughts. If a teenager is in immediate extreme danger, Dr. Friedenthal says we need to take them to the emergency room for their safety. Dr. Friedenthal confirms that typically adolescents are more likely to share suicidal thoughts with their peers than with adults, including their parents. She cites a well-publicized example of a high-achieving, gifted teenager in Boston. And after she died, they found journals with 200 pages about how much she hated herself and how badly she viewed herself and how much she was kind of at war with herself about moving forward with suicide. Her therapist didn't know. Her parents definitely didn't know. In fact, she said in the journals that she wasn't telling her parents because, I don't, I don't think these were her exact words, but they would watch her like a hawk, you know, and they would worry about her and that she might end up going to a hospital and she didn't want any of those things to happen. 
Dr. Friedenthal says she hears that same justification in her own practice, where the number one reason teens give for not talking to their parents about their suicidal thoughts or actions is the conviction their parents will freak out. And I don't want to demonize parents who do react that way because I can understand, mm-hmm. you know, it's scary. Oh. And I, you know, I can understand reacting in fear or anger or sadness or any of these things. For a lot of parents, the fact your child might not be truthful with you about something so critical will come as a surprise. I mean, these are the same people who ran to us with scraped knees for Band-Aids. Now, when the situation might be life-threatening, they keep it from us? Oh, that's a great point. That's a great point. They, they, they want help when it comes to something physical, and then here is something internal and emotional, and they may not be asking for help, which is every parent's nightmare, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you wrote a blog titled 10 Reasons Teens Avoid Telling Their Parents About Suicidal Thoughts. Can we step through the 10? Sure. You said number one, some parents offer reassurance or encouragement without first listening to what their child has to say. We want to respond in a way that encourages more disclosure, not discourages it. And so if a teen tells their parent that they're thinking of suicide, which already is going to take a lot of you know, forethought for them to make that disclosure. Mm -hmm. And the parent responds with, but you're so young. You have so much to live for. Or, you know, your your problems aren't that big. You know, then the teen is likely to think, well, they don't get it. Mm -hmm. You know, why should I bother telling them more? Another adult reaction that can shut down critical communication is reacting by being overwhelmed with sadness and fear causing the teen to console you without ever feeling heard themselves. Yeah, so many times a a parent gets very upset, and then the focus turns on the parent and they're upset, rather than on the teen and what their needs are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you can have a situation where the teenager is saying, don't worry, don't worry, I won't do anything, I didn't mean it. You know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to have upset you. But they really may still be thinking of it, and now they've learned, I can't tell my parents because it it will burden them. Believing you're a burden to your loved ones is one of depression's very common and very convincing lies. Dr. Friedenthal hears clients say, if I die, then everyone can stop worrying about me. People have a lot of thoughts when they're in a suicidal state that when they feel better, they may recognize weren't entirely rational. And and that's one. And it's like, well, but if you die, they're going to go through profound grief and they're going to worry about you in a different way. I don't say that because I don't believe in, in trying to, you know, kind of guilt someone out of acting on suicidal thoughts. I, I'm I'm certain that most, if not all, parents would rather be, quote, quote, burdened by worrying about their child than burdened by grieving the death of their child. The third reason Dr. Friedenthal says some teens don't want to talk to their parents is that some parents get angry with their child for even thinking of, let alone attempting, suicide. Yes, and, and then they might ask, how could you do this to me? This, this is just one of the saddest reasons on this list. And there are people who say their parent hit them. 
you know, people who whose parents say don't ever bring that up again or who insult them and say you're crazy or you're selfish. You know, so it's just heartbreaking that a child, a teenager, really anybody <laughs> could be in a state of mind where they're in, experiencing so much pain or hopelessness or stress that they're having thoughts of ending their life, and then when they tell somebody, that's the reaction they get. Dr. Friedenthal suggests a perception shift that could help us tame that reaction. Understand there is something outside of your child generating those despairing thoughts. And the goal is to team with your teen to understand and fight those factors. The, the anger belongs to the situation, not to the person. Suicidal thoughts are themselves something that happens to their teen. It's not something that anybody chooses, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's not that somebody wakes up one morning and says, hmm, you know, I think today I'll, I'll think of suicide. I mean, there's, there's forces beyond a person's control that create the environment for suicidal thoughts to occur. And if people can gain the ability to look at it that way, it can help them to recognize that, you know, their teen and they are both being affected by this, not that their teen is affecting them Mm -hmm. with this, with these suicidal thoughts. And when you say forces, do you mean the idea that those kinds of thoughts are a symptom of the illness? Um, they can be a symptom of illness. They can be a symptom of stress. They can be a symptom of sleep deprivation. It's it's not always an illness, but it often is, um, especially depression. Mm-hmm. Fourth on Dr. Friedenthal's list is that some parents take their children's suicidal thoughts personally, saying things like, if you really loved me, you would never think of suicide. The problem with guilting somebody is that, again, it may shut them down. I don't think it's it's something that we we should ignore. You know, we can help people get in touch with their own ambivalence about their suicidal thoughts and what their reasons are, you know, what, what is stopping them from acting on their suicidal thoughts. But if we tell them, mm-hmm. if we impose those reasons on them, then there's a number of things that can happen. One is it can shut them down. Two, it can stop them from getting in touch with their own ambivalence, which... Ambivalence is a powerful force. You know, we want them to get in touch with that. Ambivalence is a powerful force. Another suicide attempt survivor on this podcast made a similar point that stuck with us. He said, you don't have to be excited about a future, just at least a little curious about it. Because there is a part of them, it may be buried way deep in their littlest toe, (laughs) but there is a part of them that knows that. Good. And they may not have access to it. But I'm, I think this is a big reason why people who attempt suicide by overdose have such a low fatality rate, is I think that once the drug takes effect and alters their consciousness, the part of them that wants to live is able to assert itself. You know, and, and you know, there are countless people who overdosed with every intention to die and then, be, you know, in spite of themselves, called for help. Mm-hmm. You know, once once the drug started to take effect, there's there are other possible reasons for that too. And one is that it's thought that 
uh, I mean, I say it's thought, it's a theory. Mm-hmm. We have very few facts when it comes to suicide, but there's a theory that people become dissociated from their body when they're in a suicidal place, and that then when they make an attempt, they reconnect, and the will to live asserts itself again. And that overlaps with the fifth reason Dr. Friedenthal says some kids don't want to talk to their parents when suicidal. Some parents don't recognize their children's thoughts and behaviors are frequently a symptom of a mental illness like depression. So instead, they blame their child. The impression is somebody chose suicide. They made the decision. They made a conscious decision. And yes and no. You know, David Foster Wallace, um, who sadly died by suicide, wrote very eloquently about depression and suicide. He compares the decision to die by suicide to the decision to jump out of a burning building. You know, he says that that the, the fear and pain of being burned alive is greater than the fear and pain of jumping out of that building. But he says, you know, the the suicidal person doesn't choose death. Mm-hmm. They're choosing less suffering. And, and, and again, I want to be careful about using the word choosing because mm-hmm. often that choice is made under duress in the under the influence of very distorted thinking. Dr. Friedenthal understands distorted thinking, both academically and very personally. You know, I definitely have lived experience with suicidal thoughts and with suicide attempts. And I absolutely didn't choose to have those thoughts. I think there was a time in adolescence where I kind of, I don't think I know, there was a time in adolescence where I kind of romanticized suicide and it was more benign, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe in those days there was some element of choice. But in my 20s, when it really hit me, it it, it felt like an assault. Mm. (laughs) I would compare it to every morning waking up and being, I don't mean this metaphorically, I mean literally being tortured. Mm. And that if, if somebody knew that every morning when they woke up, they were going to be tortured, they would want to die too. Yeah. You know, if if they thought that was the only way out of that torture. So, you know, I think I speak from a place that's informed not only by my professional training, but also by my lived experience of, you know, of having been there that helps me to understand how the irrational can seem rational. How the irrational can seem rational. That was one of the lines that really jumped out, the other being... uh, Choosing is not necessarily reflective of a choice and reconnecting with your will to live. Those were all parts of Dr. Friedenthal's comments that just kind of, you know, I had a gut reaction to. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's not a choice and that it's unbearable. I mean, you know, it can it can just fill your your very being. So uh, what's the word? Satur- it saturates That's you. That's a good word. And... To, to find uh, escape from that saturation and heaviness and intensity is a, is a, um, a powerful feeling. I really hope this helps um, people, in particular parents, understand what it feels like and what it, what it isn't, what it is and what it isn't, uh, so that they can better support uh, their own children who need it or, you know, 
anybody else. It doesn't have to be a child and it doesn't have to be a parent, just that we can all better understand. So very grateful to Dr. Friedenthal for her time and her comments. And the validation that it's not a very uh, specific and clear path. You know, too much isn't good, too little isn't good, and everybody is feeling the same way as far as I don't really know what to do here. Mm -hmm. But the point is love and to do something. And listen, 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 so you actually understand what's going on. We will have uh, 6 through 10, the rest of her list, in next week's We Wanted to... It ended up, it was going to be one episode, but we decided to give her more time to really elaborate on these points so that we could take in that information from uh, such a, an expert on the topic and really benefit from her wisdom and experience. Mm-hmm. I look forward to it. Thanks, Terry. Thank you, Bridge. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on depression's dark road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.